0: 617 respond to report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk Podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source.
1: Now, here's your host,
0: Darren Day.
1: Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk. I am so thankful that you've joined us today in this community for another uh, exciting conversation, topic, episode, whatever you want to call it. Today's kind of a neat episode. We're going to talk about using bloodhounds. Now, some of you may use bloodhounds all the time. Some of you may think, well, what in the world do we need to use bloodhounds for? We've got cadaver dogs of all different shapes and sizes and breeds. And all of that, of course, is very true. But bloodhounds do have a great positioning in death investigation. sometimes as we're going to get into in this conversation sometimes we can track a suicidal subject that Uh, we think might have walked away and killed himself or a dementia patient that might have walked away and we think might be in the woods dead, but they had to be alive when they walked away. And sometimes a bloodhound can find them just as quick or quicker than a cadaver dog can. And there's other uses for it as well, even with HRD use, things like that. So we're talking to Dry Creek bloodhounds today, and we're going to talk about how they train, how death investigators and police and fire can use bloodhounds, things like that. We're going to get into that at length. I only have two quick announcements today. If you're interested in our online academy again, and when this comes out, it is the middle of February, 2019. The online academy will start March 9th, 2019 and the classroom If you want to come to the medical legal death investigator classroom, which is going to involve a lot of scenarios. We have vehicle investigations, scenario rooms, a lot of things set up for this course. It's the medical legal level one, but it's been expanded to four days. And so now we have some bone recovery, ID, some clandestine stuff we're going to talk about. We're not going to go out in the field for clandestine. But we are going to go out and head to some scenario rooms and have some live death scenes set up in cars, in rooms, in things where you can actually work scenes after you're taught some stuff. So it's a a classroom and a hands-on practical. That's a four days in March. You can find all of that at the cornertalk.com website. Go to training.com. And it can give you a listing of all the training. We have a lot of classroom training and a lot of online training that you can take advantage of. You know, there's, there's really no sense anymore in saying that we, we can't find training and we can't get our death investigators trained because there's a lot out there that's available if you just look for it. Now, there are only a few of us that actually do a lot of training, but they're out there if you do look for them. And I can help you find things in your area if you'll just let me know. One other thing. If you have a conference or a seminar coming up and you would like to have it listed for free in the Death Investigator magazine, we have a section for conferences and seminars and trainings all across the country. If you would like to have that put into the magazine, again, it doesn't cost your organization anything. Just send me a link, cornertalk.com. Go to there to contact or send it to darren at cornertalk.com. You can send me the information. And we will have that included into the magazine. And then whenever your event is over, we take it out of the magazine. So it's it's a service to all of us to find training around the area. And here's a place for you to advertise to hundreds of investigators for free. So we'll be very, very willing to do that. And of course, if you're still one of the few people that are not receiving the Death Investigator Magazine You can go find the app, either the iOS app or the Android app, Death Investigator Magazine. Download the app. You get one free issue. And then if you decide to subscribe from there, you certainly can. And you can get a free, I'm sorry, you can get a a continuing issue every single month after your first one, of course, is free. So again, that's Death Investigator Magazine. We're trying to do all we can to help you with Training. So without any further delay, let's jump right into this conversation that I had with Dry Creek Bloodhounds. And let's talk about bloodhounds, how they can help you, how you can use them in your uh, searches and some of your investigations and things like that. So let's jump right into that conversation now.
2: Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation.
1: All right, I'm right back with you, and joining me via the telephone is Kim and Tony from Dry Creek Bloodhounds. I know this is a little different kind of show. We're talking about bloodhounds, and they do some things a little different uh, when it comes to cadaver searching than what we're normally used to. But we're going to talk about bloodhounds today, what they can do for law enforcement, what they can do uh, as far as live tracking and dead tracking. And so, Kim, Tony, welcome to the show today. Hello. Hi there nice uh, to meet you. Yeah, you guys too. I appreciate you taking the time time to come on. And, uh, you know, one of the things just sets the background, you know, our listeners are made up of law enforcement. Uh, of course, we do have paramedics, firemen, uh, a lot of coroners, medical legal death investigators, things like that. And, uh, you know, we probably are more used to Dealing with dogs that are, you know, the probably more like air scent dogs, where we labs and shepherds and and things that, that kind of track cadavers through the air. Bloodhounds are a little bit different, so either one of you can jump in here, but tell us a little bit of difference in what a bloodhound is specifically for and where they may differ from from more like air scent dogs.
0: Well, bloodhounds uh, have some physical attributes that uh, are. I don't want to say superior, but different. Bloodhounds have 800 million olfactory sensor receptors, where we only have about 5 million. <clears throat> the average German Shepherd has about 225 million. The, the long ears are used to stir up the scents off of the ground. Uh, the dewlap, which is the uh, skin that hangs loose underneath their chin and their jowls, are used to collect scents for analyzing, and uh, humans uh, shed approximately 30 to 40,000 skin cells a minute, and it only takes a couple, two or three skin cells for a bloodhound to latch onto a scent and process it. They uh, catalog all the scents that, as they receive them and narrow down the one particular scent that you give them. Uh, we we use uh, scent articles to trail, and uh, that's the only scent they'll look for.
1: Yeah, so let me let me interrupt you here just a second. That that's uh, you know, that's very interesting the way they work. And I do know, you know, the bloodhounds, the ears, were a lot to stir the scent up along the ground. But but let me ask you this: How long after? Let's, let's just say we're using the bloodhound for a live search, and somebody has walked through the uh, the woods or whatever. How long after that person has went through there is it at times capable for a bloodhound to track them? Well, that's that's an
0: open-ended question (laughs) (laughs) because there's so many factors involved and there's so many different experiences.
1: Days to weeks, though, as just a quick answer.
0: Yeah, days to weeks. So days to weeks, as long
1: as there's not, you know, a torrential downpour of rain or snow or or something like that. But but barring any really really bad environment, you're you're talking about days or weeks, maybe of of the bloodhound being to track. A scent that you give them, right? So, so we have a missing child. You get you get dirty clothes out of the house from the missing child. Give it to the bloodhound. The bloodhound knows. Go find this smell. That's is that very. Uh, that's very elementary. I know, but is that basically what a bloodhound's looking for? Whatever you kind of tell it, it's trained to go find that. Correct.
2: And it's it's very debatable as to how long they can go, but it is, or how old the trail can be. But it's very old. It does not have to be immediate rain and snow and that type of thing does not necessarily deter it and at times can even help it.
0: Yeah. The the environment will affect the scent, the temperature, the wind, the humidity, uh, plus the terrain. So it's kind of a real open-ended question because unless you're in a perfect vacuum, it it could vary greatly. Right. Which none of us are. Moisture actually enhances the scent.
1: I see. I see. So so are bloodhounds any good at and I could have the terminology wrong, so feel free to correct me. I call it air scenting. That's what I'm used to, you know, dogs are just kind of smelling the air and they're going in the direction of of what the the the, the scent on the wind channels take them. Uh, is that something that bloodhounds can do as well or are they much more of a tracker type dog? They absolutely can do that. I'll tell you a brief story. I have an 11-month-old male that just
2: certified and at the beginning of his certification trail, which was almost a mile, he did what we call a head check across a small lake. And what he was doing there was telling me that his victim, so to speak, was across that lake. But he, he was not allowed to go that direction. Had that been a field or a wooded area rather than a body of water, he would not have followed the closer trail his victim took. He would have gone across the lake, which would have cut his his distance probably in less than a half. And some of them are better than others at it. He's particularly adept at it, as is his father. So they can really add that. That kind of brings up the difference in a tracking and a trailing dog. Our dogs, all we care is, is that they find who we ask them to find. We don't care if they go where that person went. So we love it when they give us a head check and show us that that their person is in an area and they do not have to follow the whole route the person took. Right. Because all you're allowed, looking for is the person. That also allows
0: call ground pounders in. if like when she was segregated from where she wanted to go. She could radio or other search and rescue, say, Hey, I had a head check in this area, send some people over there and start looking.
1: Right. That's that's very interesting. So when it comes to cadavers, are bloodhounds are they used very often when it comes to finding are you know human remains or is that something that other dogs are more likely to be used than bloodhounds and, and i actually do not know that question so uh or the answer so I, I, that's why i'm asking in my mind i keep thinking bloodhounds is much more just tracking tracking nose to the ground you've already kind of uh, told me that that's not entirely true but how how much often is bloodhounds used for in cadaver work compared to other dogs
2: I don't think it's, it's not a lot. I do believe that is growing. Um, Both of the parents to my young dog are certified by the Kentucky Department of Corrections as cadaver dogs, which was one of the reasons I purchased him. We wanted our dogs to be versatile. Um, They are becoming more used for that. But one of the drawbacks is, and it's a huge drawback, They are difficult to let go and work off of lead. They leave the countryside. Um, Whereas all of your other breeds tend to be much more able to stick with their handler and work where they're asked to work. So you have to work a bloodhound typically on a lead. You don't let them go.
1: And why is that? Just because the the mentality of the bloodhound is... I'm going to go to my target and and everything else behind me can wait. Absolutely. And he doesn't care if you're
2: with him or without him. He's going to go on what he believes is his mission. And it, it may be correct or he may have gotten misinformation in his mind, but he's going to finish that trail. And you can't keep up with them if you don't have a hold of them.
1: Right, which So is they're good are not
2: ideal dogs for every handler by any means. They, they're difficult
1: sometimes. Right, right. Which, which is, you know, that's that's why they're good. Because once they get on their scent, once they get on their trail, you know, they're going to do whatever it takes to find that. And that's why bloodhounds are so good. But as you pointed out, some are better than others in, in, in certain circumstances. You know, uh, one one thing I want to bring up before, you know, we kind of get too far is if we're going to bring in a dog, and if you can talk to us a little bit, not just about bloodhounds, but any dog, I guess, but bloodhounds maybe specifically. Us as law enforcement, we have somebody missing. We had an elderly person, a dementia walk-off from a house or something. We're going to bring in a dog. What caution should we have as law enforcement on the scene to protect the scene? Is it a really big deal? What should we think about there?
2: You want to... Preserve the general area that you believe the person left from, whether it's a vehicle or a dwelling, as much as you can from further fresh contamination. Um, Some dogs, what hounds and others, will try to take trail, if they're not positive, on the hottest trail, on the freshest trail. It's not unheard of to find out that you got on a police officer's trail by accident because that's what your dog took as the freshest trail. And a a scent article is very important when you're using a scent-specific hound. You have to give them a good sample of that individual's scent.
1: Right. And I know in a lot of situations before dogs are called in, the law enforcement is on the scene uh, fire department is on the scene, and you've got 50 people tramping around the yard and the woods and driving up and down the road. And, and when they can't find them, then they end up calling someone like you to come in. And in some cases, we might have made the job harder for you. Is that true?
0: Yes, that's true. But if they have a valid scent article, uncontaminated, not a here's Billy's teddy bear, but the other four kids in the house play with it. Something that is real dominant for that person, they can dismiss all the other scents. They will dismiss the hot trail, they will look for that trail. Uh, so, collecting a scent article is a major concern at a uh, situation like that. The purer it is, the better off you're going to be.
1: And so, would that be uh, like clothing, I guess, Let's whether adult or child, it doesn't matter, uh, some clothing that they maybe took off last night, something that, that would not be contaminated with other people. Is that probably the best, or what are we looking at being the best type of scent article?
2: That type of thing is the best, but it's amazing what you can use. It is ideal that the canine handler, and this is over the board by any means, not just us, But if the canine handler collects their own sin article, it just eliminates all of the in-between. If that can't be done, then the law enforcement officer needs to use gloves if he can. And um, many, many law enforcement officers carry four-by-four gauze pads in their vehicle. You can set that gauze pad in between, say, uh, the mattress pad and a sheet on a child's bed. Um, there are many ways that you can get one if you don't actually have clothing available. But we've scented our dogs off of a cigarette butt. We've scented them off of car keys. You can scent them off of a vehicle. We have scented a person off of another person, where one person carried a small child, and then we scented. Off of the little child. We try to train for real life scenarios. So set articles, you have to train with a large variance because you never know what you can't actually get.
1: Yeah, that makes that makes sense. So let's talk about training just a little bit more. What what are some of the ways that bloodhounds are trained? You've touched on it, but I know that there's much more than that. So so what what kind of rigorous training does your dogs go through and then what do they have to do to ultimately become certified we
2: have been lucky enough to have a great training support system and we have started our dogs ourselves Uh, my puppy we started at nine weeks of age we call them puppy runaways you put his harness on him and do the same routine that you would do when he is a mature working dog and you have his person that he's going to track. He can see visually the whole time if he'll look. But they run, they make high-pitched, happy noises. You build up the drive and the little guy, and and then he has a uh, article, which we just use gauze. You let him sniff that. You tell him to find his man, and the person's maybe only 20 feet away and calling him. And then they give him something that is really a, a, a nice treat for him. And it's within days, then you can usually switch to him actually having to smell where his person has gone. But we go to city parks, state ground, um, in small cities, anywhere we can go for variants of terrain, and we take the young ones with us. And we just look around until we see a place that we think will be a good, a good learning experience for them. We've done most of the training to certify ours. We're, we're just very lucky to have had the help we've had, mostly repetition. I always tell people we don't really teach them that much. They want to track. They want to find that person that's missing out there. And so we just expose them to that in as many different scenarios as we possibly can. One thing we've learned we have to do, my young dog loves children. And he has a very hard time working through a lot of playing children. So we take him to a park. We take him to the baseball diamond. And we just very happily encourage him when he stops to look and wants to engage We just, we tell him he needs to get back to work and he does, but we find whatever they struggle with and we expose them to that more and more.
1: Yeah, that, w- that would make sense uh, because each uh, dogs are going to experience a lot of different situations. Like you said, you're taking them to city parks, taking them to Bald are taking places like that. But we never know where we're going to have somebody missing. It could be in a rural area, out in the, in the woods. It could be in the city. Uh, and, of course, so you take your dogs through multiple scenarios. Uh, now, do you do you purposely try to trip them up a little bit? I mean, you know the ultimate outcome. So do you try to maybe put obstacles in their way or things in their way to trip them up, to, to let them work it out? Kind of like what we do sometimes with hunting dogs? Or do you try to keep it pretty straightforward?
0: No, uh, the whole goal on our part is to make it challenging for them. Uh, contamination, water, traffic, you know, all kinds of different scenarios. I wouldn't say we try to trip trip them up but we try to expose them and see what they can do they teach us more than we ever taught them their body language they amaze us stuff that they can do it's, it's just the more challenging that we can make it the better
1: yeah and that makes sense i know that years ago i had a cadaver dog and i had to train her constantly and you know we would do different scenarios and not again again not trying to trip them up, but in a way, trying to expose them to things that are different. And I know with with the cadaver dog that I had, now it's more like an HRD, they call them, but you know, I had to train with her a lot to keep her, and she still was motivated, but keep her memory. So how often do you have to be training with your dogs to kind of keep them on track?
0: I mean, generally, we try to train at least three times a week. Uh, it's pretty demanding, but to them, it's a game. They love to go. When we open up the back of the truck where they're going to get loaded up, they get real antsy. They love to go hunt because at the end of the hunt, somebody's going to love them up and tell them what great of a job they did. And that's the reward they're after. So we try to train three times a week usually.
2: I think you will find, though, that this is one of the things that's different. They they are so driven to trail something, they don't care what it is, that you don't really have to train them like you do the HRD dog or the patrol dog, those types of things. There is a lot of education that we do try to give them, but most of it is innate ability. And then you have to form that into what you need them to do. But they're not as difficult To, Or in my opinion, I have a little bit of patrol dog background, not much. There's not near as much detailed, precise training that goes on. We intentionally do not put a lot of obedience or that type of work on them. When they're out on the end of their 30-foot lead and the child is lost in the middle of a state forest, we don't want that dog to turn around and look to us for support or um, correction or direction. We want it to be self-confident, and then we just try to read the situation, keep the dog out of trouble, and and go with him. So it is very different.
1: Right. I know that when uh, it comes to, like, rabbit dogs, you know, uh, a a beagle— is bred to chase rabbits, and you don't have to train them to chase rabbits. Now there are other things that you need to train your hunting dog to do. Probably come when called and do different things like that. Coon dogs, uh, you have a coon dog worth any salt at all. You're going to turn it loose; it's going to have a tree, uh, a, a coon up a tree within no time. And that's what you're saying about bloodhounds. Instinctually, their uh, their whole goal in life is to track something, right? And so, yeah. and, and so that's what. The, and I, I understand the difference when it comes to like a patrol dog. Uh, Dogs are not, um, you know, a dog is not innately, you know, by by design to... set and to heal and to to do certain commands and so with with patrol dogs it takes a lot more working with it drug dogs again they're trying to play but again they got to find that so i i I guess i can uh, certainly see that difference and when it comes to your uh, tracking dogs the way the way you're talking they're on a 30 foot lead their job is to track and it doesn't really matter if they if they heal and set and stay and do all that they're on a lead they're just got one purpose find that missing person or whatever their job is
2: Exactly, and they they are a different type of intelligent, um, and they're very smart dogs, but they don't usually show it to the average bystander. And whereas you see the superior intelligence in a good patrol dog or a good drug dog, these dogs would be miserable to try to protect you. I or to, you know, to, to do the things a good patrol dog can do. They are pretty much just one track mind, and that is to find what, what you set them on. So they're never like a replacement. If, when when you need a dog, you may not need a bloodhound. You may need that patrol dog or that HRD dog. They're just a tool that is very specialized in a huge toolbox
1: full of tools. Right. And I actually think that's very good because there there's use a bloodhound for what a bloodhound is good for use a German shepherd for what a German shepherd is good for. And, and you're going to get the best results trying, trying to turn. And I'm kind of chuckling at this, trying to turn a bloodhound into patrol dog. I cannot see whatever works. It would be a miserable failure, but it would be absolutely
2: hysterical to watch.
1: That is true. <laughs> yeah, you know we're yeah. going back to Roscoe P. Coltrane back in Dukes of Hazzard. You know he had Flash. His now that was a see, but well, that a basset hound, I think. But still, it kind of looks kind of looks very similar. But the, yeah, he wasn't a very good patrol dog.
0: We don't let a bloodhound fool you. They are full of energy. They are not like oh uh, the Beverly Hillbillies will duke laid around on the front step. They are full of spunk.
1: Right, which and makes them almost good like, at working.
0: they almost like raising teenagers, because they listen about that good, and they're <laughs> rambunctious.
1: Yeah, well, that then that, that's interesting because again, they all they all have their jobs. I, I knew somebody here locally. Uh, it's been a lot of years ago now, but they raised bloodhounds and and did a little tracking work with them and things, and then they were good dogs. But yeah, they were they were a different breed when you get around the patrol dogs and drug dogs and things like that. So one of the things that when we come back to to, to the training thing, I know you had mentioned talking to our producer something about. Uh, using a flanker, why that's important. Explain to us what that is and how that is part of the training process.
0: Well, my opinion, or our opinion, the flanker is very, very valuable. When you're behind that 30-foot lead, you don't have time to look at the GPS, radio back to to the base station, scan the area for any kind of uh, predator, which can pop up also. Uh, any kind of distraction, uh, you're going to fall off a cliff if you keep going this way. The flanker has all that responsibility. Plus, it needs to be able to step up if something happens to the handler and take over the dog. So there's, there's a lot of... I know Kim was on a search one time and there was a great Pyrenees out in the woods that wasn't aggressive to him but kept stalking him the whole time. So she was a flanker at that time she kept an eye on him and kept him at bay so it didn't affect the handler and their dog. So it's it's actually a, quite a, a big, important job.
1: Right, right. I can see that. So so basically it's just somebody that, that works with and walks with the handler. So the handler deals with the dog and the flanker does everything else around uh, as far as safety-wise or notes or things like that. Correct. So you guys are there, located oh, in – Go ahead.
2: for run. <laughs> Mine, mine at 11 months weighs about 110 pounds, and oh, wow. he does not walk on his trail. He, he goes as hard as he can go, so it's hard to keep up with anything happening around you.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's, it sounds to me like it's hard to keep up with the dog. at going. It is.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they're powerful. they're powerful enough. They can pull you down and injure you, and somebody needs to be there to grab a hold of the string.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Now, you guys are located in Missouri, correct? Yeah. So, so what is your guys' uh, response district? I know you said you went to Kentucky for training, and you do a lot of multi-state things. But, but what is your area for response?
2: If it's a child, and we can get there in time, if law enforcement thinks we can help, we'll travel wherever we need to travel. We don't really have a set area. It's more whether or not law enforcement gets a hold of us and they feel like that the time it would take us to get to them is productive or not. Uh, Both of our jobs work with us as far as traveling. Uh, We would not want to tell anybody no, if we were within a distance that they felt we could help them. Now you guys,
1: are are you guys part of a group of other dog handlers or, or are you strictly independent? We are independent. It is
2: just Tony and I, as we start training more with law enforcement in our general area, which we're starting to work out, and some local volunteer fire departments, that type of thing, we would like to get other people that are interested in flanking or working with us and learning to handle our dogs in case for some reason, as Tony pointed out, we get hurt or can't for some reason. But it, right now it is just he and I. Typically, we would only send one dog out at a time anyway. So we flank for each other.
1: Right. Now, do you normally take um, I say normally, but would you maybe take two dogs with you? Uh, if you responded somewhere, only search with one dog, but that way you have a backup at the truck in case a dog got hurt or tired. Or do you only just leave the, your, your property normally with this one dog?
2: We'll take the the dog hauler comfortably carries three dogs. If we have three dogs that will work, we'll take three. Sometimes one dog is better suited than another. If we were starting early in the day and had plenty of time, Tony's dog, Allie, would probably be a better dog to send out. She's more likely to find us the um, information along the trail. She doesn't go quite as hard. If the weather was bad or we were moving on to nighttime and it was a little child, we probably would start with my puppy. He works harder. Um, But he's not as detailed right now on his trail as what she is. So they have different applications as to who might work better. Plus, as you pointed out, if one of them gets hurt or it's too hot, we want to try to be able to cycle through and not have to stop.
1: Right. And sometimes dogs, just like people, are having bad days. I mean, your dog Allie might be fine, except tomorrow she's not feeling good. And if that's the only option you had, then that could, could be an issue. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's great that you take all, all three dogs. Have you ever had situations where you've kind of, you've had that come up where you would think one of the dogs would be great, but they're just not feeling good that day and you've had to switch to another one? Yeah,
2: and that has mostly come into play for us with Allie. She's one of our females that if she passes all of her health certifications, we will probably breed. When she's in heat, she's miserable. She, She won't work. Now, I don't know if in a stress situation, they can pick up on that when it's real. She might would work better. But when we try to train her when she's in heat, when we try to do some training, she just doesn't work for us. We've we've learned our experiences. We will always have at least a couple for that very reason. uh, Just for whatever a bad day. Every now and then, my my young dog just doesn't care to work. He just sort of busts through whatever's going on. Typically, they can tell if the situation is real. Um, We don't have a lot of experience in the field. Thank goodness, there's you know not been a lot around us, but. they can tell when it's more pressured and they usually will work better then. But by all means, if we have three that will work, we will haul three.
1: Right. Yeah, that makes that makes good sense. So if somebody wanted to get a hold of you guys, uh Dry Creek Bloodhounds, do you guys have a website by that name? Or what'd be the best way for somebody to reach out if they had questions? Maybe they're interested in bloodhound work and they want to ask you some more questions. We have drycreekbloodhounds.com bloodhounds.com. And that has contact information
2: and some information about us and our dogs. Okay. Yeah, and then perfect. we also have Dry Creek Bloodhounds Facebook page.
1: Perfect. Yep. I'll have a, a link to your uh, website, drycreekbloodhounds.com will be in the show notes. Anybody can can find it it there. So, you know, one last thing I want to ask you, is there anything that you would want to leave to our listeners Uh, uh, about bloodhounds, something we haven't covered, anything that you think that would be important for our listeners to understand and know about working with bloodhounds?
2: No, not anything specific. Um, They're they're a fantastic tool. If they're calling us in particular, we would prefer to be called immediately and then when we get there, find out that the person had been found or even when we're on our way find out that they have been found rather than call us hours into a search and get us a late start our service is completely free and it's not just to certain communities if someone calls us and we can and they feel we can help them our service is free and there's one other thing that we try to do we have what are called at risk scent kits it's very simple It's a glass jar, a sterile gauze pad, a sterile set of gloves, a tamper-proof seal, and a label. You can use the gauze pad to take scent from a child or an at-risk adult, and then you seal it in that jar and store it in a cool, dry place. And two years down the road, if that person wanders off, you're a huge step ahead of the game Not just for us, but for any scent specific
1: canine. So, is that something that uh, not only can people get from you guys, but that's something they can find elsewhere? I've not actually heard of that scent kit. I've seen
2: one place that actually sells them. We do not sell them, we donate them. Sometimes businesses donate back if we give them, and then we just reapply that to more scent kits. There is one, I believe actual retail fit kit on the market but they're they're not all, they're not hundred percent but it's a huge step if if when your child is missing and you can step up and say here's a thick kit and the information for that's on our website it's also something a person can make themselves they don't have to get it from us we try to keep them and whenever we are around law enforcement or fire departments whatever, we donate them to them, but you can make one yourself. It's very simplistic. It, there's a little a little thing on it on our website about them.
1: Oh, so somebody could learn something from there. And one of the things you said a while ago, which I do want to recap just real quickly, you had made mention, and I believe probably nationwide, any other uh, uh, service, dog service handling company like that would be the same. You said you would rather be called right off and be canceled then wait till hours later and then be called. And I think that's a very interesting point because I think so many, and not I think, I know in so many cases over the years that I've seen, like I said a while ago, police have looked, mom and dad has looked, fire department is involved. After all of that search is done, then someone decides maybe we better call a dog. And you're saying, Call us first and let us get there and make better decisions. And, and I believe that most places would probably agree with you, correct?
2: Oh, I think so. And you might not even use us once we get there. And that's okay. Our whole goal is just to try to help somebody. And I would rather be there and be able to help them than to not be there. A lot of times I think they're they are trying to make a decision whether or not they really need to call dogs in i think they're trying to be courteous and respectful but i would rather waste a day i would rather drive somewhere and not be needed or the person be found than to get a late and slow start
1: right and also i would have to think that again you don't want to you know obviously all every day all the time but i would think it would be beneficial to get a call early on you know, get the dogs loaded, get the equipment together, and get there, whether you're called off or not, just the response training for you and your dogs is probably valuable as well. Absolutely.
2: And we, we don't get called out much. We're, we're very new. So it's all new to us, although we've had some great support, which has boosted us along the way. So yes, to, to actually make a call somewhere, even if we never unloaded a dog. Would teach us what we did properly and what we could improve on, and we'll never make a call that there's not something that we could improve on. So it would it, it is not really a detrimental thing to call us early and not need us.
1: Right, right, and I and I would think that more the local police departments and fire departments, the more that you share that with, the more you talk to them about. You know, if you have a missing person, call us immediately. You can always call us off. I think they'll uh, I think you're right. They're trying to be number one, decide whether they need you or not. Number two, they're trying to be courteous, not call you until you're needed. But I think if you told them that and the local dispatch centers and things like that, hey, if you think you have a missing person, call us. We'll stage closer to the area, wherever you want us to stage. At least we'll be within, within the area if you need us. I think if they just know that, they'll probably use you more uh, because they're probably not used to that. They're probably just what you're saying. Hey, let's not bother them unless we have to.
2: I would I would imagine so. And we try to communicate that. And we are not pushing super hard to get out in the community. We're just starting to make a lot of contact with people and with with different law enforcement agencies. Um, We're really enjoying that, and it seems very well received, but we're trying to not kind of push ourselves into the law enforcement scene. We want them to know that we are there only to help them. We don't want any notoriety. We don't need any Um, media, any of that type of thing. All we want to do is help and and then be done, you know, just pack up and come on
1: home. Certainly, certainly. And I I think being involved in some community events, maybe showing up at some 4th of July celebrations with the dog so people can see you and get to things like that. That just gets your name out there more. That's that's just PR stuff. But I mean, just doing those things gets you and your dogs more known. So the police and the fire department, you could even probably even join with the fire department to to sponsor a, a training event or or a demonstration and I think that will get your name out there and more. Plus it's great training for the dogs.
2: There's one other thing that might be a little more pertinent to your actual coroner and death situation. We are still very much learning when scent changes from a living scent to a to a death scent. But one place the dogs can help is if someone has wandered away to commit suicide A cadaver Dog would find that person, but because they walked off, our dogs would be trailing that living scent until they found them. The human would no longer have that living scent. So they can help in situations of a wander off kind of death, whether they died of their own hand or something else's, as long as there's a living trail for them to follow. They they can help there. And, and we are working on HRD, but we are by no means in that business yet.
1: Right, right. But but again, if you had an elderly person wander off and maybe they, they did fall down and, and die in the woods, the fact that they wandered off, your dog could track them. Once they found, they would find the cadaver, but they found the person uh, or child right. or... Or suicide. Very good point. Like you mentioned, there are people who walk away from the house to go back in the woods somewhere. I've had several of those where the person said they were going to commit suicide. They walked away from the house and it took it took hours and sometimes even the next day for us to find them. And that's all through, you know, pounding the the you know, foot traffic out in the woods trying to find them. Uh, Again, you're saying that your dog would have been able to track the person to where they were because they tracked the live scent. once they got there, they were dead. But that would have uh, made it a lot faster than what it would have been for us. Sure. Yes, exactly. And I think that that's something that might be uh, forgotten because... We think, well, the person wandered off to commit suicide and they haven't been heard of or heard from in hours. Uh, it's the next day. We assume they probably did commit suicide. So now we're thinking, well, let's walk around that. Let's see what we can find. And then we call in a cadaver dog. I don't I don't know that a lot of people even think to call in a tracking dog. But, but what you just said makes very, very good sense. If they walked away from the house, there was a live stint they walked away from. So your bloodhounds yeah. would come in very handy when... I'm thinking that you wouldn't have been top of mind because they would have been looking for a cadaver. And, and if the person had not killed himself yet, the cadaver dog wouldn't have found them where your bloodhounds would have come in very handy.
2: Sure. There there are places that they are specialized that the other dogs can't do. And then there are places where they can't perform a duty. The others can. And there's a little gray area in between there, but I, I think they are not as simple to actually live with as um, a lot of the other breeds. And it takes a, I'm going to say a special kind of person, and I'm going to laugh when I say that because they're special, all right. It takes a strong person that can understand that type of mentality to work a bloodhound. So they're not as accepted in a lot of the handler fields as much yet, but I think they're kind of making a comeback. It seems like they're, they are sort of being revived and um, places where they have some good teams and the teams are stable and have proven themselves. The dogs are getting used a lot.
1: Yeah. And you, you always think of bloodhounds when it comes to law enforcement, you think of a prison and I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, painting, I'm painting a broad brush, but over the years, you yeah. think of of prison officials having bloodhounds to track escape prisoners. Now, today, 2019, maybe a little different, but certainly over the last hundred years, that's been a very uh, that's been a very big icon of the dogs an escape prisoner. Absolutely,
2: yes, and it it is a very valuable tool. And if you think about it, it can be applied the way they use them to find a prisoner can be applied to some of the ways that you would use them for the civilian population.
1: Right, right. Same same difference. You're still tracking the person.
0: One other thing that we've ran across is a lot of people don't realize what they can do, how they can do what they do, because a lot of it's just, well, they've never seen it
2: even law enforcement or professional people don't understand what they're capable of, which is why we try to get out when we can and train in communities. And we're starting to try to do some demos for area law enforcement, fire department, that type of thing.
1: Right, right. Well, it's, and one of the reasons why a lot of law enforcement and officials don't understand it, because bloodhounds are not that common in this field. I mean, we, you know, we have the, uh, the patrol dogs of various sizes and kinds we have drug dogs of various sizes and kinds but bloodhounds are just not something that that we have all worked with as much as the other dogs so i could see where that would be a not a confusion i guess but a we don't think about bloodhounds because that isn't top of our mind all the time
0: we had one person uh kind of give us the well prove it and uh, he had a set of keys he said can that dog track me on these keys and we said yes yeah. So he gave us the keys, took off running, went and hid. It was just a little short distance. And we sent it down to the keys. He went out there in in the dark, and it was a high find. And he normally hasn't trained that way. And the guy said, well, you convinced me now. Let's go train.
1: Very interesting.
2: It it was a puppy that wasn't even – he was on his collar. He did not have his tracking harness on. The guy tossed me the keys. We threw the harness on the puppy. And the guy was on top of the jungle gym where there was a lot of contamination around the firehouse and around the playground equipment. Now, it wasn't a very long distance, but it was the the puppy's first uh, time for working in the dark and his first high find. And he did it immediately.
1: Right. Interesting. Yeah, that's just who they are. That's what they do. And they've just proven that they can, you know, they're good at it. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And I'm glad you, I'm glad you got on the show today because you, you've kind of sparked my interest again in bloodhounds. Again, I. I'm like everybody else. I I don't think about them that much, I guess, because the other dogs are so much more prevalent. But Kim, Tony, thank you so much for being on the Corner Talk podcast and sharing with us. Again, Dry Creek Bloodhounds, drycreekbloodhounds.com. You can find out more uh, about what they do. You can find out about their dogs, Kim and Tony and and everything from there. Guys, I thank you very much for being on the show. I appreciate you taking the time to jump in and, and educate all of us again about this type of dog. And then, of course, if you anybody has any questions they can contact you there absolutely
0: thank you very much you're more than welcome thank you
1: all right thank you you guys have a great day all right i'm back with you i hope you got a lot out of that i know i did i got reminded again about bloodhounds what they can do how we can use them things like that dry creek bloodhounds is a fantastic organization as you heard they're willing to help in any way that they can uh, put on any type of programs, maybe just give you some information or maybe just hook you up to people in your area that might be training and using bloodhounds. You might be on the other side of the country completely, but but they can get you through it through their trainings and their associations probably find Use somebody in your area. So again, I want to thank you for sticking along this long uh, through the whole show and listening to the conversation about bloodhounds. Again, remind you about training. Go to the training link. Find anything you need there if you want some... something specific let me know that as well i hope your year is starting out well we're already the second uh we're in the middle of the second month of the year it's already going by that fast so i hope everything is jumping in like you want it to now of course we're at that time of the year where most new year's resolutions are starting to fade you made resolutions and by six or eight weeks in most people have abandoned in those so if it was an important resolution in your life You know, let's uh, let's get that re-energized and get back on that so you don't uh, you don't lose out on whatever it was you thought was important enough to make. So I remember as I close every single week, I want you to be a blessing to someone. Find a way to bless your fellow man in the world that we're living in and in the United States and the vision that we're in right now. And with some of the lunacy that is going on in Washington right now, the our, our neighbors, our friends and neighbors, certainly are dealing with a lot of that mess, and they could use a blessing from you. Uh, most of all, until next week, everybody, be safe.
0: Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coronertraining. 3617, 1024 seen en route to Morgue.